What you believe you need will control you. I want you to think about that statement for a little bit. I would love for you to reflect upon it all day. Even think about how you can apply that idea, this concept, to your relationships. Let me say it again. What you believe you will need, or what you believe you need, will control you. If you believe you need it, it will control you. If you don't have it, I want to talk about that in this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Rick Thomas. You're listening to Your Daily Drive. If you would like to read this podcast, please go to our website and you can read it. That would be fantastic. Same uh, same title as the podcast, What You Believe You Need Will Control You. All people have a desire for approval and acceptance. You want to be approved. You want to be accepted. So do I. When God made us in his image, he also gave us a natural yearning to be part of a community. We want to be like other people. We want to join other people. We want other people to love us, to approve us, to accept us. We don't want people to reject us. There is nothing wrong with that desire. But the problem arises when we try to satisfy our longing for others outside of God's perspective and intention. When we go outside God's perspective on this matter, when we go outside his intention on relationships, we can become demanding. We can become punitive, especially if those people that we want something from do not give us what we want the way that we want it. And so there's a fine line here. I am not saying that you should never desire a relationship or people to accept you. That would be unnatural, unbiblical. It would be ungodly. We should want to experience that kind of relationship. But it's when we are controlled by that to the point where we are sinning against others, then it becomes problematic. Why is it vital to have a biblical view of relationships? Part of the answer is knowing the Trinity. Understanding the Trinity will help open up this idea of relationships. Let me say it this way. Triune God has always existed in a community. Father, Son, Spirit. Before his crowning achievement, man, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, enjoyed a mutually benefiting relationship with each other. And so it makes sense that when he created man, a desire for community was an expected part of man's longing. That's why I say it would be unbiblical, unwise, unhealthy, not to long, not to want a relationship. Before man's fall in the Garden of Eden, this desire was a good thing because Adam was sinless. Adam had a divinely infused wiring to love God, to seek God, and to enjoy a reciprocal relationship with God. And he did love the Lord, and the Lord loved him, and it was a beautiful thing. It was a perfect thing. All was well with man's soul. But then the man fell down. And when the man fell in the garden of Eden, things went wrong. Though his desire for a community did not change his thoughts about relationship and how to participate in community radically changed. His fall had consequences, one of which was a twisted self-serving heart. 
See, God made Adam in his image, and Adam, part of that implies that Adam wants to be part of a community because God is a community. In the first two chapters of Genesis, it was a perfect community of, of God and Adam, and then Eve was added, and it was even more perfect, but it was sinless. And then in Genesis 3, 6, man fell down, Eve fell with him, and they still had that desire for community. But rather than being a other-centered community— they became a self-centered community. The desire stayed, but it changed. It radically changed because of the fall of man. The post-Eden man is motivated to restore the brokenness in his heart through love, acceptance, approval, significance that he can get from others. Rather than finding restoration from the Lord, rather than asking God to save us, to restore us, and to change us the way it was before the fall— we have now other options. We seek other means and ways, usually through people. And rather than finding love and acceptance and approval and significance from God, primarily, we seek that from other people. And this worldview makes us self-centered, not other-centered. We can't obey the two great commandments in Matthew 22 of loving God and loving others the most. And without the intervening power of the Spirit of God, we will never understand that what we need is forgiveness and acceptance from God first. And once you are forgiven by God and then accepted by Him, you are then positioned to need others less while being empowered to love others more. You see how that transaction of salvation changes things radically. Rather than seeing people as a means to satisfy some emptiness or unmet longings in our own souls, we turn to God and we experience salvation. And now we are radically changed to where we're not using people to satisfy us, but we want to be in community for an entirely different reason so that we can love others, serve others, as a fallen person, we have a twisted, built-in desire for approval that will compel us toward two errors in our judgment. One, we will seek love primarily in human relationships rather than in God, and you see that in our culture all the time. God is pushed to the side, if I could say it that way. He is marginalized. He is rejected. And, and because we have a twisted desire for approval, primarily we move toward human relationships to meet that desire. And the second error in judgment is our pursuit of human relationships will be mainly for self-serving purposes. So not only are we moving horizontally toward human relationships to meet the desire, but we're meeting that desire for self-serving purposes. The post-Eden man will succumb to the temptation to use people rather than giving to others. His thoughts about relationships can be akin to the drug addict. It is only as good as what he can get out of it. His reasoning can be along these lines. I need your love. Will you give me your love? If you give me your love, I will be your friend. If you don't meet my expectations for love, I will look elsewhere. Can you hear the self-centeredness in this twisted way of thinking about relationships? Imagine if Christ thought about us that way. Imagine if Christ came and said, 
I need your love. Will you give me your love? Well, no, we were alienated from God. We were futile in our thinking. We were rejecting God. Imagine if he went on to say, if you give me your love, I will be your friend. Romans 5, 8 is going off in your mind right now. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then Jesus says, if you don't meet my expectation for love, I will look elsewhere. Can you hear how twisted that is? Outside of a clear and practical understanding of the gospel, most people will seek and build their relationships the way that I have described. If the gospel does not become the primary motivator of a man's thinking, he will finish his life with a string of broken relationships. I want to give you some helpful starter questions that I hope will serve you to think about yourself and also think about your desire for acceptance. Here are four of them. The first question is quite straightforward. Do you need people? I want you to think about, these are starter questions to help you get in gear of what I'm sharing in this podcast, but I want, I want you to think about you, I, I, and I want you to think about your desire for acceptance. Do you need people? That's why I titled the podcast this way. What you believe you need will control you. Do you believe you need people? Question number two, do people control you by their opinion of you, their rejection of you, or their praise of you? I have talked to many pastors and, and ministry leaders, just talked to one recently who, who, who told, told me, and I appreciate his humility and his transparency, but he talked about how when he preaches a sermon, he doesn't get the, the acceptance, the accolades that he wished that his congregation would provide for him. In that sense, his congregation controls him because they do not praise him the way that they want to. He needs them. Put needs in, in quotation marks. He shouldn't need them. So question number one, do you need people? Question number two, do people control you by their opinion of you, their rejection of you, their praise of you? Number three, how does the gospel inform and motivate how you build your life with others? Is the gospel informing you, motivating you practically? And then number four, Whose approval matters the most to you? God's approval of you or others? And some people will trip up on this question here because when they think about God's approval because of whatever has happened to them, maybe significant abuse in their life, maybe legalistic religious upbringing, maybe a horrific family background, and because they map their experiences over how they think about God, when they think about God's approval, they don't feel God's approval. They don't truly understand how God approves them perfectly in the Son, in Jesus Christ. And so when I ask this fourth question, whose approval matters the most to you? It can be a tricky question for some people. Does God's opinion matter the most to you, and is that, is, is that the one that is controlling you? Or do other people's opinion control you? When a man realizes that his real communal breakdown of the heart is between him and God, he will be on track toward restoring his soul the way God originally intended. This is a key idea. If you are controlled by the opinions of others, motivated by the opinions of others, the praise of others, or the lack of praise of others, then rather than trying to fix that horizontally, I want you to think about it vertically. You have to realize that the real communal breakdown of your heart is between you and God. And if you see this, then you are on the track. You're on the right track toward restoring your soul 
the way God intended. Now, if you do not see this or biblically understand the communal breakdown of the heart, what will happen is you will begin to work this out horizontally. You'll begin to crave false lovers, and the hope will be that you'll find satisfying relationships. i got some bad news for you. Trying to feel the longing in your soul horizontally rather than vertically with the Lord, it will not satisfy. These fake lovers will be your attempt to fill a void that you sense in your soul, and it just won't work. Let me give you just a, just a few illustrations of, of who these false lovers can be. A girlfriend could be a false lover, or a boyfriend. A girlfriend-boyfriend is the teen's number one answer for filling the void in their souls. Too many times these relationships began because the dad was not an active participant in the child's life. As the child becomes a teen, she drifts from the hope of ever having a satisfying relationship with the number one male in her life, and she begins looking for other males to satisfy her desires. Rarely will anyone admit what is truly going on in the heart of the teen. Perhaps the teenager is very cognizant of what she is doing, or the boyfriend, what the, a boy will do the same thing. I'm just using a girl as an illustration here, but boys and girls do, do similarly, and they will never admit what they're really doing, even if they have some kind of an echo of awareness of what they're doing. She's looking for love in all the wrong places. It is so commonplace in our culture that to speak against these artificial relationships is considered by some to be abnormal, harsh, legalistic, but it is a false lover because you're seeking primarily horizontally to fill a void that only God can fill. Another one is pornography. I'll talk mostly to the guys about this one. It's one of the more common false lovers that men twist themselves into with the hope of satisfying their craving for love. Porn is easy and safe, quotation marks. As the thinking goes, it is a make-believe world, a cyber world, a make-believe world where the addict can, can feel a perverse experience of love. Porn for the guy can be similar to what a chick flick or a romance novel can be to a girl. It's an escape into a fantasy where love is craved and felt and experienced. And so a false lover can be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. A false lover can be pornography. Here's another one, career. Career ambition, that's a massive trap for many folks. A career builder, which is a good thing. It can be a good thing. You want to work hard. But here's the key. A career builder does not automatically mean a kingdom builder, though they can be. You can build a career because you have a higher view. You're a kingdom builder, and your, your work, your vocation, whatever it may be, is, is serving the greater intents of your heart, which is to be a kingdom builder. But sometimes career ambition is not that. It is a way of satisfying the longings. And one of the more subtle twists of this kind of craving is when we spiritualize our pursuit of riches. Career ambition. A fourth one is the ministry. It's kind of tied to this, tied to career. And so we have boyfriend, girlfriend, we have pornography, we have career ambition, and we have the ministry. Probably the most subtle of all the temptation zones for the approval-driven individual. Rarely does anyone discuss this trap, though some do. And one of the reasons they don't discuss it is because it seems so right. What could be wrong? I'm doing the Lord's work. 
As odd as it may seem, there have been some men and women who were not successful in the world. They couldn't really make it work in the world, but they found religion to be a ladder to climb to satisfy their lust for attention, for approval, for acceptance. Here's the fact. Whatever or whoever you need will control you. This small but powerful quote is a life is life altering as it pertains to relationships. Do you need people? How you answer that question will determine the kind and the quality of friendships that you will seek to build. The title of the podcast is What You Believe You Need Will Control You. God's world is different from our world. To have healthy relationships, you must not think about them from the culture's perspective, which is basically what what I've been commenting on thus far. Fulfilling and satisfying relationships must come through the portal of God's perspective and His understanding. Let me illustrate my point this way. A very basic illustration. If I pour water out of a cup, the cup is emptier, right? Of course that's right. It's common sense. That is the way things work in our world. If you pour water out of a cup, the cup is emptier. But what if I told you that in God's world, you could pour the water out of the cup, and the cup would never diminish in quantity? We see an illustration of this in 1 Kings 17, 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This is a story of Elijah. You can read this in 1 Kings 17. If you think about it from our culture's perspective, it's absurd. But in God's economy, in God's world, it is true. Let me state my case this way. God is love. And when he pours out love to another person, there is no diminishing of him in the least bit. You see, if there was any diminishing of God at all, he would cease to be God. He is always plenary. He is always full, complete. So when God gives love, he is not emptier like it is in the world. When you pour out a cup of water, it is emptier. But God, who is love, pours his love into others. He's not diminished in any way. That's the way love in God's world works. Here's the key idea. To give love does not diminish you of love, but to crave love will deplete you of love while filling you with lust. The lover has an enlarged soul, while the craver of love experiences an always shrinking soul. I really want you to think about that. And if you want to read this, you can... You can read this quote. I want you to meditate on it. Just go to this article and read it and and just spend some time thinking about what I just said. In Adam, self-centeredness is native, it is standard, it is common sense, and it is expected. But in Christ, other-centeredness is native and standard and common sense and expected. The fullest and most complete people Who you will ever meet in your life are the ones who are the most selfless. The emptiest and most incomplete people who you will ever meet in your life are the most selfish. Let the gospel be your guide. In Mark 10.45, we are given a hint as to how we should relate to others. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
The point and purpose of relationships should be motivated and sustained by this kind of gospel-centric mindset. Of course, this worldview begs the question, as some may ask, well, what's in it for me? Now, this doesn't have to be a bad question. I mean, when you got saved, you were probably asking some version of this question. What's in it for me? If I get saved, what meanest thou this? What's in it for me? Some can take that question too far. If I spend my life giving to others, what do I get out of it? What is the benefit of this kind of thinking and living? Now, I'm, I'm okay with asking that question in a sense, but these questions could also be gospel-deficient questions. Let me reiterate. The fullest and most complete people that you will ever meet are the ones who are the most selfless. The most empty and incomplete people who you will ever meet in your life are the most selfish Notice how Paul answers the what's in it for me question as it pertains to the marriage relationship in Ephesians 5, 25, 26, and 27. I want you to think about this, the what's in it for me. Point number one in verse 25, Christ gave his life for another. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ gave his life for another. In verse 26, he did this so he could save her, that he might sanctify her, the church, verse 26. And there's, then verse 27, he will receive the work he put into her. The passage says, so that he may present the church to himself. We're talking about a gospel-centered activity here. Christ will receive, what's in it for Christ? He will receive the work of his hands in return for his selfless giving and dying. Do you see the order here? You first lay down your life for another so that you could sanctify her as Christ did, and then he received the work of his hands. That's the order there is something in it for Christ. There is something in it for you, but first you lay down your life. The Savior practiced what he preached. He did not come here for others to serve him. His heart's desire was to minister to others. Every argument or disagreement I have ever had with my wife happened because I set aside this kind of gospel-centered thinking in favor of placing myself in the center of my world while demanding that my wife meet my desires. If Christ thought the way that I believed at those moments, there would be no cross, no gospel, no salvation, and no hope of ever being saved from ourselves. But when I do choose to live out the gospel in my marriage, dying to myself, a picture of what Christ told us to do, what Paul told us to do, what Christ did in Ephesians 5, when I choose to die to myself, not only am I enjoying the satisfying privilege of serving my wife, but I am becoming fuller and fuller as each day passes. If the gospel is not the purpose behind how and why you build relationally, you will displace the Lord while moving yourself to the center of your relational world. And this posture will not only fracture your relationships, but it will suck the life out of them. Here's a few questions for you to think about, four of them as you continue to reflect about this podcast. Number one, how does the gospel affect how you build relationally with others I would encourage you to use these questions in a small group setting or use these questions with your, with your spouse, whether it's a, a wife or a husband. You can even use these questions in your family. Wouldn't that be dynamic? 
Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that provide possibly some leadership opportunities for some people to make some changes in their lives? How does the gospel affect how you build relationally with others and then explain that within this group or whatever configuration that you have that you're sharing with? Number two, reflect on your last argument with someone. How did your practical imitation of the gospel impact the encounter? Number three, do you believe you need people? Be careful how you think about this. Do you believe that you need people? If so, how does that belief and practice control how you build relationally? Tease that out. Just don't blow through this like you're going through a Facebook stream. But stop. Spend time reflecting, chewing the cud like the cow under the the shade tree in the pasture. Spend some time thinking about it. Question number four. If you do need people, why is God not wholly satisfying to where his love releases you from the bondage of being controlled by others? When God's love is fully satisfying, we don't need people as much as the need that we have with people is not what they can give to us, but what we can provide for them. That's when the orientation of the gospel is truly in play. Let me share a brief case study. Biff A 54-year-old IT consultant said, All I ever wanted was for my dad to accept me. He's been dead for seven years, and I still long for his approval. Bill's perspective regarding his dad is not unusual. I have heard scores of stories from men and women, though they are adults now who still long for the affirmation of their fathers. A kind Wise and thoughtful parent understands this potential relationship dysfunction in the lives of their children. They also realize that their child will only be satisfied after God saves them, which is why the essence of parenting is to guide a child to God. You see, your children, like mine, were born post the fall of Adam, post Genesis 3-6, and because of that, there is a God-shaped void in their soul's and you want to guide them to God because you you realize that there is a potential relationship dysfunction in their lives, and that's why the essence of parenting is to guide them to the Lord for salvation first and then sanctification. If the parent does not parent with this kind of understanding, the child will likely long for love and affirmation in other places. And I gave you four fake false lovers earlier Parents are called to guide their children to the one who can satisfy their deepest longings. Let me give you a small sampling of ways a parent can motivate or demotivate a child to pursue God. Here are three things for you to consider. Number one, encouragement is one of the most common ways a dad can motivate his child. Paul expected us to understand this when he said that it it is the kindness of God that leads to change. A kind word or a kind acknowledgement from a parent can have a remarkable shaping influence on any child. The converse is also true. Harshness could be considered the opposite of encouragement. A harsh or unkind parent should not be surprised when their teen is more interested in unwise encounters with the opposite sex. And so here is a small sampling of how a parent can motivate or demotivate a child to pursue God. One, encouragement. One of the most effective things that you can do as a parent is to encourage your child. 
Two, this is a demotivator, harshness, the opposite of encouragement. And then number three, silence and passivity, also a demotivator. Silence and passivity are not neutral behaviors. God is a speaking God, and a parent who does not talk regularly or actively engage with their children will live to regret their lack of gospel-motivated modeling. The title of the podcast is What You Believe You Need Will Control You. Here's uh, a few call-to-action questions. Jesus told us in Luke 6.45 that out of our hearts our mouths speak. Imagine the practical ramifications if our hearts were amazed and affected by the gospel to the point that we stop seeking so much and demanding so much that others love us and we begin to reorient our minds, turn our minds another direction called repentance to where we're pouring ourselves into other people and becoming fuller and fuller. Question number one, or thought number one, explain how the gospel affects your speech patterns. Spend some time thinking about your speech patterns. What do they say to other people? Now, this would be a great opportunity for you to ask someone does does do my speech does my speech communicate that I'm a needy person and I need for you to do something for me or does my speech build you up here's another way you can do this are your friends more aware of your displeasure with them or your pleasure in them and then number 3 will you talk to someone soon about the content of this podcast will you share it with a friend And if you want to further tease this out, then I would appeal to you to come to our forums on our website, and you can ask your questions there, and it would be a joy to serve you. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.